And now, Lord, as we come to Your Word, we pray, Lord, that as we open Your Word, that You would open our hearts, open our minds to receive Your Word. We come only as beggars, poor beggars, who deserve nothing, but whom You have poured Your grace on, whom You have lavished Your grace on. We thank You, O Lord, for Your grace, and we pray that it would be working in us as we come to Your Word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding in order that we may have not only information, but transformation. In order that we would be conformed into Christ's image. Use Your Word, O Lord, to pry into the depths of our hearts and to shine light into any dark corners that may be there. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 33 today. And you might be thinking, wow, how can you even preach 11 verses within an hour? Uh, I'm not going to keep you here until uh, this afternoon. Trust me, we're going to be getting through it. Um, maybe that's because I'm really looking forward to chapter 17, uh, that, we, that we're doing 11 verses. But it's also a whole unit by itself. I think it stands by itself. Um, this is one of the... One of the most loved passages in all of Scripture. The way that this chapter concludes, it's so encouraging. Um, But before we get there, we're going to see the weakness of the disciples, the weakness of their faith. Who can question that Michael Jordan was perhaps, he was at least one of the greatest basketball players of all time, if not the single best basketball player of all times. His legacy is absolutely undeniable, and in his prime, there was nobody, nobody in the whole world who was as good as he was, especially if time was running out. But a lot of people have asked, especially people who wanted to be good at basketball, people have asked, what made him so good as a basketball player? Well, if you were to ask him, he'd actually give a ton of credit to his high school uh, basketball coach who actually cut him from the varsity team his sophomore year. Uh, That just crushed him. But he was determined to make it the following year, and so Michael Jordan spent an entire year working tirelessly, hours every day, on the basics, on the simple things of the game, the fundamentals of the game. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm sure athletic ability helped. Uh, I think no matter how much I were to practice basketball, the fundamentals of basketball, I I don't have the athletic ability of Michael Jordan, so I could never be as good. Uh, Sure, being six foot six helped him be a great basketball player. But even if you're six foot six, and even if you know you you have all these natural gifts, you know this natural athletic ability, if you don't have a mastery of the fundamentals in basketball, you're going to end up with a career someplace else, other than the NBA. Mastering the fundamentals, the basics in basketball is crucial because it's almost impossible to cheat at basketball. Almost impossible to cheat, but not quite. One of the lowest and most despicable sports scandals that's happened in my entire life, maybe the single most despicable scandal in my whole life, is one I hadn't even heard about until this past week. 
uh, the scandal happened at the Paralympics in Sydney uh, in year 2000. After Spain won the gold medal, it was discovered that 10 out of the 12 players on the roster had intentionally failed IQ tests, which had been administered prior to the games as a means of determining their eligibility. Uh, They actually had no impairments at all. So as a result of this really disgusting and despicable scandal, the the gold medals were stripped from the Spanish team. But beyond that, every event, all events for all athletes with intellectual disabilities were removed from the next two Paralympics as a result of this scandal. I bring this contrast up to help you get a picture, to help you visualize the difference between God's ways and man's ways when it comes to growing in the faith. What we must realize is that there are no shortcuts to growing in Christ's likeness. There are no shortcuts, no easy ways to mature in the Christian faith. Spiritual growth, however, does happen, and it doesn't have a complicated formula. Make no mistake about it, it is messy. Spiritual growth is messy. The whole Christian life is messy. But the design that God has given us for strengthening our faith is actually very simple. In the Reformed tradition, we refer to the things that God has given us, the things that God has ordained for our growth in Christ's likeness as the ordinary means of grace. That's referring to sanctifying grace as opposed to justifying grace. They're both grace, but we continue to need grace after we are justified. We need sanctifying grace. And to that end, God has ordained what the Reformed tradition refers to as the ordinary means of grace. They're just the the basics. The simple things that God has given us for the purpose of transforming us, of growing us in Christ's likeness, of sustaining our faith and growing our faith. The problem is that in our desire to finish the race that's set before us, to make it an easier course, uh, because we do grow weary and fatigued, the flesh inclines us to be less like Michael Jordan, and more like the 2000 Spanish Paralympics basketball team in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. If only it was easy. If only there were some shortcuts. If only you could just do this and this and this and and your, your growth would just correspond instantly with it. It's just not the way it works. In the text that we'll be looking at today, Jesus concludes the portion of the text that we refer to as the farewell discourse. We've been studying the farewell discourse for months now. Uh, It started back in chapter 13, uh, and and it ends in this chapter, in chapter 16, with incredible words of encouragement. As Jesus says to the disciples at the end of this chapter, He says, These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. What an amazing promise for us to lay hold of by faith. We love those words. We love that Christ has overcome the world. We love that we have peace in Him. But before He gets to this point, He's going to warn the disciples. Now, we've already seen Him warn them. He's warned them about the hatred, the animosity that they would face 
from the world, the, the, the hatred that they would endure by the world because the world hates Christ. But there's a more immediate danger that they will face. And it's a more immediate danger that we will face as well. And that is themselves. They are so weak. Their faith is so fragile. And the truth about every single one of us, friends, is that we are also so weak. It's not just that we're weak, though. It's that we fail to recognize or fail to remember just how weak we are. The disciples had so much room to grow, even after spending three years walking by the side of Jesus. They had so much room to grow, and so too, friends, do you and I have much, much room to grow in our walk with Christ. How do we do that? How do we grow in our walk with Christ? How do we overcome? There are no shortcuts. There's no cheating at this task. The only answer is this. By availing ourselves to the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained. And that's the point of the text that we're going to be looking at today. The point is that spiritual weakness is overcome If not prevented for the most part, it's overcome by regularly and consistently availing ourselves to the means of grace that God has ordained for our spiritual growth and sustenance. So having told His disciples that their grief over His death would be turned into joy upon His resurrection from the dead, He illustrated this with a parable of a mother who has to go through the agony of labor to experience the joy of childbirth. Now Jesus gives the disciples a promise about what will happen after His resurrection. So Jesus continues in verses 23 and 24 saying this. He says, In that day, you will not question Me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. What wonderful news. What a wonderful promise it was to be told by the Lord that the grief that they were about to experience would be turned into a joy that, if you look at the end of verse 22, a joy that nobody could ever take away from them. It's theirs. The world can't take it. Their their family can't take it. Nobody can take the joy that we have in Christ. They were only a few days away from experiencing this joy firsthand. But even after they were physically reunited with Jesus after the resurrection, He would only remain in their midst for another 40 days teaching them. After that, the transition to being led physically by Christ for three years to being led spiritually by the Holy Spirit would be complete and Jesus would ascend into heaven. What then? For three years, Jesus has been the one that they've gone to if they had a question. For three years, Jesus has been the one that they've gone to if they needed to know something, if they wanted to know something, if they had a concern. Jesus was the one that they went to. When the disciples were asked back in chapter 6 if they were going to abandon Jesus just like all these other masses of followers abandoned Jesus, Peter famously responded by saying, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. So now physically with them. 
And the wonderful, amazing answer is God the Father. They will go straight to the Father. For so long, the disciples had gone to Christ to ask many things, but they had never gone to the Father. This is an entitlement that would be granted to Christ's people throughout the remainder of the current age. It's in anticipation of this entitlement that Jesus instructs His disciples and and us to ask the Father for anything in Christ's name with the promise that He, the Father, will give it to them. So what is He commanding them to do ultimately? He's commanding them to avail themselves to perhaps the easiest and perhaps the most natural, the most frequently used of the ordinary means of grace. And that is prayer. Prayer. Prayer was given to us to strengthen our faith, to to, to strengthen and sustain our faith by practicing it. See, this is the importance of believing in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have union with Christ. We are united to Christ as a branch that's grafted onto a tree has unity with that tree. You might say, as Paul so frequently did, that we are in Christ. And in Christ, we have not only fellowship with Christ, but we also have fellowship and communion with the Father. Apart from Christ, we don't have that. In Christ, we have that. Apart from Christ, a person has no access, no communion, no fellowship with the Father. They're on their own. They're they're out in the cold. Only those who are in Christ are given this promise. Only those who are in Christ have this access, this communion, this fellowship with the Father. Where we can come to Him as we come to our earthly fathers with requests in our prayers. This promise is sealed with Jesus' words Truly, truly. Anytime Jesus says, truly, truly, He means truly, truly. He means, I mean it. This is serious. It's like underlining whatever He's about to say. So whenever He says, truly, truly, we want to pay attention to what He's saying. It's a promise that He makes here. When the author of Hebrews writes, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying this only He's saying that this is a privilege and entitlement that only we have, only Christians have. To to whom does the word we in that verse refer when it says, let us draw near with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace? Who is that we? Who is us? It's Christians. It's Christians and only Christians. Only those who are in Christ. Noting that Christians are both ethnically uh, Jewish and Gentile and have the same God, Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, through Him, that is through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. We pray to the Father by the merit and in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. We pray to the Father through the Son, in the name of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
to the Romans, Paul kind of explains this when he writes, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And also note how verse 24 here in John ends. It ends with the reason that we may pray directly to the Father. So that your joy, your plural, may be full, may be made full. Now, if you were to go down the list of shortest verses in the Bible, everybody knows the one Jesus wept, right? We've seen that one. But we also find two verses, two commands, which are given in succession on this list in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes only four words in the Greek. Four words in two verses. Everybody can memorize those two verses, right? Two words in the Greek, five words in the English. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Praying is the means by which we lay hold of every reason to rejoice by faith. Without the latter, without prayer, you will very likely fail to practice the former. Rejoicing. Think of it this way. Why do you suppose it is that Christians who are on their deathbeds, feel a sense of peace? Why do you think it is that Christians who are in areas where persecution is increased are closer to Christ? They they have a greater sense of joy when they worship Christ. Why do you suppose it is that a Christian who is, is suffering in any way feels a higher degree of joyful peace than does a Christian who isn't suffering? Is it not because suffering has a way of forcing us to our knees in prayer. The connection between prayer and joy is found in the fact that in prayer, we have fellowship, we have communion with God the Father, which fills our hearts with joy. Now we know that Christians are not all equally gifted, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about different gifts. One person has one spiritual gift. Another person has you know, a totally different set of, of spiritual gifts. The gifts are given by the Spirit for the sake of building up the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts according to the needs of the church. But it doesn't work this way with prayer. We are all instructed to pray. Every Christian is instructed to to pray. Whether you're weak or strong, you're instructed to pray. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're young or old, you are instructed to pray. Prayer is something that we must all commit ourselves to doing. This is why we call it an ordinary means of grace instead of an extraordinary means of grace, which is what it would be if only a few were able to do it. No, it's an ordinary means of grace. It's something that is for every Christian, for their growing, for their strength, for their growth. Now, the the tense of the word you here, uh, when Jesus says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. The tense there is plural. In in the South, they might say something like, uh, if all y'all ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to all y'all. Communicates it a little bit more clearly than just plain English, right? But this also indicates 
it's something that, yeah, we should be doing on our own, but there's also perhaps the implication there that it involves coming together with other Christians, having it be plural, and praying and worshiping together. So let's understand this clearly. Prayer is one of the tools, it's one of the means that God has ordained, that He has given us for overcoming our spiritual weakness and growing in Christ's likeness. And so is coming together for worshiping and praying. Both praying and gathering with the saints are means that God has ordained for us by which we are conformed to Christ's image, sustained in our faith, and by which we grow in our walk with Jesus. Jesus continues, verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now the term these things here uh, most likely refers to everything that Jesus has said in the farewell discourse, but I think it's also possible to make the argument that it could refer to everything that Jesus has taught them over the course of the previous three years as they have walked together. Whichever it may be, Jesus recognizes that there are many, many, many things that the disciples are still very, very confused over. And they're not going to understand it until Jesus puts it in plain language for them. Kind of like the parable of the seed in Mark chapter 4. He, he gives them this parable. They go and they talk with each other, right? So they go to him and he tells them in plain language. Well, there are a lot of things that were kind of like that still for the disciples that would be responded to the same way, with plain language. They wouldn't struggle with this confusion forever. Jesus assures them that the time is indeed coming when He will speak very plainly and understandably to them in regards to the Father. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, attest to the fact that the disciples were regularly just totally confused about so many of Jesus' teachings. And they unanimously bear testimony to the disciples' lack of understanding about Jesus' resurrection more, spe- uh, more specifically. And yet this would be foundational. The, the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ would be foundational to their understanding of every single aspect of Jesus' ministry. They haven't understood anything because they don't understand the significance of what is still to come. They didn't understand now. But Jesus is promising them that they will. They would understand. The day would come when they would understand. Jesus would see them after the resurrection. He would appear to them. And He would do for them what He did for the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. Their spirits were just crushed. And we read about how confused they were about Jesus until what happened. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says, Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And the encounter ends with this, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized Him. Notice that it doesn't say, Then they opened their eyes. Their eyes had to be opened for them. Their eyes being opened 
from their perspective, was a passive act. A passive act means it was done for them or to them, but they didn't play any role in it being done. Jesus had to open their eyes in order for them to see Him for who He was. And that started with explaining the Scriptures to them. He was going to do the same for the eleven disciples. After His ascension into heaven, even, if, even after that, the Holy Spirit would continue to guide them into all, at least about Jesus. What we should see here, though, is that the eleven, at least at, at this point, they have so little understanding. They're confused about so many things. And Jesus knows that they're confused about so many things. They still have so much to learn even after walking with Jesus for three years. Now, if you were to, to ask a person, you know, what, what do you think you'd gain from walking with Jesus for three years? I mean, if you asked me, I'd say, you know, I, I'd be smarter than a, you know, a PhD candidate for theology. You know, I'd, I'd have a really good grasp of, of everything. But they show us that that's not the case. But this verse, this is a verse that should encourage us to remember that there is always, always so much room for spiritual growth in Christ. The question that might come up in light of a verse like this is something like this. Well, why didn't Jesus just always speak clearly and plainly to the disciples throughout His ministry? Why did He speak in, in figures of speech? Why didn't He speak in a way so that they could always understand everything that He was saying? And I think that's a legitimate question. It's a good question. And I think the answer starts with actually another question. Uh, are the Scriptures uh, throughout, are, are they easy to understand? You know, however many pages a Bible is, your, your Bible is, it's a lot of pages. Are, are they all easy to understand? And the truth is, no. No, they're not easy to understand. They're, they're not designed to necessarily be easy. There are principles and there are ideas that are taught in Scripture that are so contrary to everything that we have ever learned and everything that we uh, are ever inclined to think or do in the flesh that we struggle to see or to believe these ideas and these principles in Scripture. Sometimes people take years Sometimes people take decades to understand things in Scripture. Like we all believe that there's free will, right? I mean, to, to an extent. That, that's one example. We all are raised with the idea that there's free will. If I want to tie my shoes, I bend over and tie my shoes. If I don't want to, I don't. But we don't have free will because if we did, if I wanted to stop sinning, I could just stop sinning. And so could you. To be holy, we should... If we don't have free will. We have a desire to be holy. We should if we're in Christ. And yet we have an inability to act according to that will. So why doesn't God make the Christian life easier for us? Why doesn't He make the Scriptures easier for us? There are two answers that I would propose. First of all, it would make us exceedingly prideful. And there's only one thing that pride does to a person. It puffs them up. A Christian may go through seasons in which their growth in Christ, in which their walk with Christ feels stagnant. Maybe it's not even just a feeling. Maybe they really do become stagnant in their spiritual growth. Uh, bonafide Christians, legitimate Christians, can even go through seasons of backsliding. 
if the Christian life were completely a cakewalk, if understanding the Scriptures were just so easy, we would take credit for what we know and how we grow. And we would steal the glory that God deserves for both our spiritual life and for our growth in Christ. If growing as a Christian and understanding everything that Scripture teaches, if that was all easy, we would think that we know so much because we're so smart, rather than humbly seeking the Lord for grace and for understanding and for growth. John Calvin noted that the Lord sometimes allows us to be, quote-unquote, stupefied for a time, so that we will learn our own spiritual poverty before He grants us clarity and understanding and growth. Our pride would also cause us to look down on other Christians who didn't have the level of understanding that we have and who don't conform to Christ's image as much as we may think we do. Even the times, however, when God is allowing us to remain in, be behind the veiled glass, right? Even when He allows us to be stupefied for a time, even those times are a blessing. Even those times are ordained by God for our good. For the Christian, all things are ordained for our good. And there's always hope in Christ for spiritual growth. The second reason I think God doesn't make the Christian life easy or the Scriptures easier to understand is because the studying of the Scriptures is yet another one of the ordinary means of grace. If it were easy, how likely would we be to come back and study something after we've already studied it once? Uh, think about it this way. When was the last time you picked up a first grade level math book? Not for your kids, for yourself. You'd say, I, I don't need that. I, I understand everything in there. Don't think for a second that you wouldn't have the same attitude toward the Scriptures if it were all easy to understand. That's a pretty good reason for God to make it a little bit more difficult for us to understand, don't you think? Praying, gathering together with fellow saints regularly, going to church, uh, studying God's Word, these are all ordinary means of grace. Something that God has given all of us, not just a few of us, but all of us to do in order to receive spiritual growth and sustenance. By the way, what grace it is that Jesus even makes this promise to them. He knows that within just a couple hours from where they are at this moment, He knows that in just a couple hours, the disciples are going to disperse. They're going to completely abandon Him. They're not even going to be thinking of Him. They're just going to be thinking of themselves. And they claim to love Him, but they're going to run for it. And with that in mind, the fact that Jesus makes this promise to them anyway, that He would remain faithful to them, even after they're unfaithful to Him, how beautiful is that? They will grow by His grace, and in His perfect timing. Let's continue, verses 26 and 27. Jesus continues and says, In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. 
Now here Jesus is just repeating the priority of prayer. He's building on top of what He's already established. He's clarifying what it means to pray to the Father in Christ's name and what all that exactly implies. Uh, D.A. Carson notes in his commentary, quote, all these categories have been introduced, but Jesus wants his followers to understand that the phrase, in my name, does not mean that they are thereby distanced from God, end quote. In other words, as Jesus kind of plainly says to the disciples here, it doesn't mean that they will make their requests to Jesus and that Jesus will then make those requests to the Father and that the Father will respond to the Son and then the Son kind of, kind of going back and forth that way. No, Jesus is our mediator, but He gives us access directly to the Father. What Jesus is saying is that the Father Himself will hear their prayers because He loves them. All this time... The disciples have come to know that Jesus loves them. But the idea that God the Father loves them with the same love with which He loved Jesus the Son perhaps hadn't entirely settled in their minds yet. But what this means is that on the basis of Christ's perfect life, perfect work, we can draw near to God the Father. And the Father is near to us because we come to Him in Jesus' name. James is the one who said, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But there's an implication here, and I think it's fairly explicit. It's this, apart from Christ, we would not have this access to the Father. That is, only Christians can pray in Jesus' name. Somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus doesn't desire Christ's will, so they can't come in Jesus' name. So only Christians have fellowship with the Father and thus access through prayer to the Father. Non-Christians have absolutely zero promises and therefore zero assurance that God will even listen to their prayers. If they've rejected His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, why should He listen to their prayers? James Boyce notes of our access to the Father that, quote, it is a family privilege. God does not promise to hear the prayer of anyone who comes to Him in any way, but through faith in the person and work of His unique and beloved Son. End quote. Here's the good news that's in there. The good news, friends, is that even when you have failed in your faith, and your faith will fail, even when your faith has been tested and has been revealed to be weak, fragile, frail, you still have the privilege in Christ of coming to the Father in prayer. Not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Christ's perfect, unblemished, sinless life. Jesus summarizes that perfect life as He continues, speaking pretty clearly now in verse 28. He says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Now if you notice, there are four clauses in that verse. And these four clauses are so 
rich in what we would call Christology. If you want to know something about Christ, this is a great verse to start with. If you don't know anything about Christ, start with verse 28 here. This tells us so much about Jesus. Jesus came from the Father, first of all. Secondly, He came into the world. Third, He would now be leaving. And fourth, He was returning to the Father. These statements are all telling us very, very important things about Jesus. First, Jesus came from the Father. This is a clear reference to His divine origin. It's a truth that, as we're going to see in just a moment, the disciples actually did understand. Uh, People say that Jesus never ever claimed to be God. You know what I tell people when they claim that Jesus never claimed to be God? I tell them, read John. Because in the book of John, what you'll find, if you look closely, is that about once per chapter, Jesus claims to be God in one way or another. So read it. Read the book of John. Read the Gospel of John. And pray to God. Ask for understanding. Ask Him to show you. But here, in verse 28, Jesus is very clearly and unequivocally claiming to be God. To be means that there was a will before he was born. He had the desire, the, the willingness before he was born to come. This is a clear reference to the incarnation, right? To the act of Christ stepping down from his eternal throne in heaven, taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, and taking upon himself true, fully human nature. There's something interesting here that gets lost in translation, by the way. Uh, With that first clause, when he said, I came from the Father, he spoke in the past tense. But as he says that he has come into the world, he speaks in the perfect tense, which means that it's an action that happened once and has a continuing effect. Uh, Does his coming into the world have continuing effects? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why we gather? Isn't that why we worship him? Because it does have continuing effects. We're here because God has called us by name out of darkness into His marvelous light. And our sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ shed for us. His sacrificial substitutionary death does have continuing effects on the world even today and will be until He returns. Third, Jesus moves to the the present tense with the third clause, speaking of His departure from the world, which would happen in only a few hours from the time He spoke this, when He was on the cross. In doing so, when He departed from the world, He carried the sins of His people away from them. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. If you know how the scapegoat worked in the Old Testament, the sins of the people were laid on the scapegoat and the scapegoat would go far away. The sins of everyone weren't laid on the scapegoat, only the people. The people. So, too, Christ took the sins of His people, a specific group of people, His people, and He took them as far as east is from the west. The fourth clause, finally, Jesus says that He is going to the Father. Why? Why was He going to the Father? To present Himself as a sacrifice for sins on behalf of His people. On behalf of all 
who believe in Him. The resurrection would prove that God's justice was satisfied in Christ's death. If you take these four clauses together, what do you have? This is the Gospel, right? This is the Gospel. The Gospel is more than just words. The the Gospel is more than just a message that God uses to save us. The Gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God not only to save us, by the way, but to sanctify us. We need to hear it. We need to hear it often. We need to preach the Gospel to ourselves often, regularly. Why? Because we forget it every single day. There's nothing difficult to understand about any of these four clauses. There's nothing complicated. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing. It's all very easy to understand. So, why doesn't everybody just believe? Because they don't want to surrender their lives to Him. And they're much more comfortable comparing themselves morally to their morally corrupt neighbors than comparing what they are to the holiness of God. The disciples have an interesting reaction to this. We find in verses 29 to 31. We read, His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? The disciples here make a a profession of faith based on their understanding of what Jesus just said and how plainly He said it. They, they believe that He knows all things. That's interesting that they say that because the implication, as some commentators argue, the implication seems to be that uh, perhaps with what He said back in verse 28, He answered a question that they were asking among themselves or that was at least in their minds. Uh, that he wouldn't have had any other way of knowing unless he was actually God. So they say, by this, we believe you came from God. By this. In other words, you proved it to us, so we believe. We have taken all the evidence, and after weighing the evidence, we have ruled in your favor, right? We, we've believed, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. When Peter made his famous profession of faith, it wasn't because of any evidence that he believed in Jesus. Rather, when he made his famous profession of faith in Jesus, Jesus turned to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father. It was the Father. There, Jesus is rejoicing. That Peter makes this, this profession of faith. He's, he's rejoicing that Peter did this. That the Father had revealed this to Peter. But here, Jesus' response is not to rejoice. Here, Jesus' response is one of indignation. Righteous indignation. He says, do you now believe? He's not rejoicing. He's, he's very solemn. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to them, oh, oh really? Really, you, be- you believe now? After three years, this is what convinced you, huh? You think you believe now? His response to them is a challenge for them to see the reality of their own spiritual poverty. 
the weakness and the frailty of this faith that they are professing in Christ. Because it wasn't something that would stand. Whatever belief they think they have in this moment is about to be shattered into a million pieces in less than two hours. That's how solid their profession of faith here is. And Jesus knows it. So He responds. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. There's a prophecy here. He's telling them what is about to happen. And it's a pretty scary prophecy if you think about what he's saying. The faith that they had just professed was about to be dashed to pieces. It wasn't going to last. They, they, they better not stand on it because it won't hold their weight. They were only an hour or two away from falling away completely and scattering to save themselves, leaving Jesus completely on His own. They were so so weak. How aware of their weakness were they at this point when they say this? They're not. They're almost prideful. No. They have nothing to be prideful about. They were so weak. They were far, far weaker than they realized. You know, once upon a time, we used to sing songs, some songs here uh, that you might hear on Christian radio, but we also sang the hymn I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. And the time came when one time we were singing that, I was leading us singing that, and here I was realizing that I was vowing something to God that I couldn't possibly do. What I realized is that it was God who was the one who has freely given all to me. As for me, as I sing this song, all I could think about was all the times in my life when I would just run away instead of surrendering all to Jesus. I thought of Jesus saying that if we're going to follow Him, we have to deny ourselves. And just how inclined I constantly am to keep so much of myself to myself. I will ever love and trust Him. Minute by minute, I am looking to Christ saying, help my unbelief. All I could think about was how imperfect my love and trust for God truly is. And it was in the middle of singing this song. I was crying, but it wasn't because the song was moving me. It was because I realized I am promising something to God that I cannot live up to, and I am thereby sinning by singing this song. See, you and I... Friends, we are just like the disciples. Our faith is so weak. He calls us one way. And our inclination and our actions often are to run the other way, leaving Him alone. And yet, Jesus does not go to the cross alone. The Father was with Him. Paul would experience something similar. He would write to Timothy of how all of his companions forsook him, 
But he says this in 2 Timothy 4.17. He says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation, also translated as the preaching, might be fully accomplished. Because the Father would be with Him, and because Jesus was faithful in remaining in the Father's will, making a perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people in their place, Jesus closes the farewell discourse with words of comfort. These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In Him we have peace. In the world we have trouble and tribulation. In only a few hours, where were they going to be? They'd be abandoning the the peace that they have in Christ, leaving Jesus to Himself. Friends, if you look to the world for peace, if you look to the world for comfort or joy, you're not going to find it there. As a Christian, the only thing that you're going to find by using the world's methods of finding peace and all those things is trouble and tribulation. We must regularly recognize how weak we are in our faith and therefore avail ourselves to the ordinary means of grace because we know how weak we are. One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn as a pastor is that one way to identify a person who is struggling with sin privately is to see how regularly, to ask perhaps, how regularly they are availing themselves to the ordinary means of grace. Are they praying? Are you praying regularly? Are they coming to church? Are they getting out of here as quickly as they can after church? Are they, are they doing all these things? Are they, are they studying God's Word? Are they hearing the Gospel preached regularly? Somebody who is struggling with private sin will not be availing themselves to any of those means of grace. Or they will be availing themselves as infrequently as possible. Friends, the ordinary means of grace were given to us for our good. For our growth in Christ's likeness. We must avail ourselves to them. You know, when I was a kid, my grandparents had an irrigation canal that ran behind their house. And about every two weeks or so, they would see that their grass was starting to die, that it was starting to wither and turn yellow. And so they would open the irrigation canal, releasing the water from the canal into their yard, which would give new life to the grass in their yard. Without that water, the grass would have withered and died And friends, that is a picture. That's an illustration of our need to avail ourselves to the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in order to overcome our spiritual weakness and to be sustained in our walk with the Lord. The world is like a hot sun beating down on the grass. It threatens to drain you. It threatens to deplete you and deprive you of spiritual growth and peace and joy. The world does all it can. It does all kinds of things to lessen or to deprive you of the joy that is rightfully yours in Christ Jesus. But Jesus overcame the world. He didn't say, I will overcome. He says, I have. It's done. He came into this kingdom and He conquered. This kingdom is just in shambles. You look around, it's just 
in a state of decay because Jesus has conquered. He has overcome this kingdom, the worldly kingdom that we live in. Jesus overcame the world. He knows that you and I will have troubles in the world, and He knows that my faith and your faith, if left uh, untouched, if left unsustained by His grace, would completely fall flat. It would fail. Just like the faith of the disciples would. But He didn't forsake them. And He won't forsake you. Times or seasons of spiritual weakness probably can't be avoided altogether. But God has ordained the ordinary means of grace to strengthen you in your weakness and to equip you for living in this world. There are no shortcuts. There is no cheating when it comes to growing in Christ's likeness. Prayer, Bible study, gathering for worship with, the fellows, with your fellow saints, hearing the Gospel proclaimed, avail yourselves, give, give yourselves to these things regularly. Knowing this, friends, even in times when your faith might be doing pretty well, remember this, that you aren't saved because of the strength of your faith. We're saved because of the faithfulness of Christ unto all who believe in Him. And so, be encouraged whenever you realize just how spiritually weak you are. The battle is already won. Like the disciples, we have so much room to grow, but His grace is greater than our weakness. Just like His grace would be stronger than the weakness of the disciples. So draw near to Him. Draw near to God through Christ. Live in the victory that Christ accomplished for His people. The world will not drain you nor deplete you of His saving grace. They will not pluck you from His hand. They will not thwart His purposes. For Christ came into this world and overcame it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the grace that we have received in Christ. We realize, O Lord, that even what faith we have isn't our own. It's a gift from You. We thank You for filling us with faith, for giving us faith. And we ask, O Lord, that You would grow our faith. Teach us And fill us with conviction to avail ourselves to the ordinary means of grace that you have given us in order that we may steward the faith that you've given us, that it may be sustained, that it may even by your grace be grown, and that we would be grown in Christ's likeness. Teach us, O Lord, to do this for the glory of Christ in order that we may be a bright light in this dark world that you would use in mighty ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.